Welcome to episode 239 with my guest, Samantha Finkelstein. This episode is sponsored by the Out of the Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk. Uh, The website for that is chicagowalk.org. According to the CDC, after cancer and heart disease, suicide accounts for more years of life loss than any other cause of death. So donate to the Art of the Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk, which benefits the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can donate at chicagowalk.org, and it is tax-deductible. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that does not suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, browse the forum, read some blogs, uh, fill out a survey. Uh, You know, we love to read uh, your anonymous surveys here on the podcast. It not only helps me get to know who you guys are, uh, the listeners, but um, helps me understand the breadth of human uh, experience and emotion because so many of us um, never share uh, certain parts of our lives with anybody and um, it's been really helpful to me professionally and personally to to read those surveys and to uh, understand you guys and and what you uh, what you struggle with uh, I got two big live events coming up uh, in September uh, the first one is at LA pod fest it's uh going to be uh, the weekend of uh, September 18th through 20th. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we're doing a live version of this podcast on Saturday night, the 19th. And my guest is going to be um, uh, comedian, podcaster, Jackie Cation. Really looking forward to doing that. Um, you can buy tickets to the event at LAPodFest.com. You can also, if you can't make it to town, you can, uh, for $25, you can buy a weekend um pass which allows you to watch video streaming of all of the podcasts which are recorded there and go to the website and see the list it's amazing it's all the top podcasts um and mine (laughs) gonna be there um and if you use the offer code mental uh you get five dollars off and um those videos will be up there for a month after the event um so it's a really really great way to uh check check it out and um we get $7 for each person that uses the offer code MENTAL, so it's also a way to donate to the show. The second live event I have coming up is Sunday, uh, September 27th in Brooklyn at the Bell House, and that's a, a Sunday night, um, as I, I think I said, 7 o'clock, and my guest is uh, performer, writer Elaine Moore. Uh, she is not Elaine, uh, I said uh, and then Lane Moore. <clears throat> Her name is Lane Moore, and she's a writer-performer. She's written for The Onion. Um, she does a sex and relationship advice for Cosmo, and she's just a really funny, funny person. Um, and really looking forward to that. And for more information or tickets, you can go to thebellhouseny.com. That's uh, T-H-E-B-E-L-L-H-O-U-S-E-N-Y.com. And... Um, Tickets are 15 in advance, 20 at the door, and um, would love to see you there. So hopefully you'll you'll show up to one of those two things. Uh, feeling okay today? Started taking vitamin D. I, I think I told you I went to the doctor, had some blood work done. He said I'm low testosterone and um, low vitamin D. So I'm hoping that this, this uh, stretch of uh, having to nap 
at uh, 3 o'clock every day, even if I'm only getting it up at 11, is, is going to end because it's, uh, it's, it's starting to really play on my psyche. You know, I'm pretty good about being compassionate towards myself regarding laying down and taking naps. But when I'm just feeling like I'm going through the motions in my life, um, it's it, it, going to bed is like the only thing that feels true. It's the only thing that doesn't feel like I'm having to slap a face on and doing doing this podcast honestly because I can I can be honest with you guys about what I'm going through when I'm struggling and um, you know I'm not in that place where I was like I don't want to be alive. But I'm just in that place where I want to enjoy life more. I know my life is awesome on paper. I just want to feel it. Um, I'm going to read a couple of surveys. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Warrior Wounds and about her anxiety. She writes, please don't talk to me, not because I don't want to talk to you, but because I can't lose the rest of the day to replaying the conversation, looking for places I said something stupid and caused you not to like me. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Thank you for that. Had some peanut butter before I uh, cashew butter. And I think it's fucking my voice up a little bit. Um, making me a little phlegmy. You know what? Let's pause. Let's have a little sip of green tea. And hello to my friends with misophonia. This is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Grim. And about her depression, she writes, My persistent depressive disorder feels like I'm that tiny flower or blade of grass trying to poke itself up between the sidewalk cracks in the concrete jungle. That's a great one. And then this one is from a guy who calls himself Well-Worn. He has um, anxiety and PTSD, and he writes, If it's my mind, why does it keep criticizing and attacking me? Doesn't it know who pays the bills? My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it. But I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. And I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was. Amazing. I'm here with uh, Samantha Finkelstein, who uh, is originally from here in Los Angeles. Yep, I'm from the San Fernando Valley originally. You are uh, 24 years old, and you have a degree in nutrition. Mm-hmm, yep. And you have a, a blog. What is the, the address of the blog again? Yeah, so uh, right now it's Nourished Blog dot wordpress.com i have purchased the nourishedblog.com domain and we're working on getting that up and running so um but for now go to nourishedblog.wordpress.com and the blog is called the nourished soul and it's uh i i didn't have uh time to really look at it in depth didn't have time i didn't make time to to look at it really in depth (laughs) well a lot of times what i what i will do is 
um, sleep all day, and at the last minute, uh, s- slap together whatever I have to have to get done uh, before I, I I do it. And a lot of times, it's um, when I have a guest scheduled to record, I will go. Um, even though we've exchanged emails back and forth, mm-hmm. because I have so many emails going at one time with listeners and prospective guests, etc., um, I lose track of the details of person's story. So I'll, yeah. I'll kind of refresh it, and I look back through your thing, and it had your blog link, and so I went, and I was just kind of skimming it, reading a little bit here and a little bit there, but it 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 it's quite a beautiful blog. Thank you yeah, really yeah. seem to care deeply about. Uh, the relationship between nutrition and happiness. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, one of the things is I'm not going to get too much into America and like media and all that. But I I do think that it's just really hard growing up in our society here in this country um, and to to be a female. But I mean, there are plenty of of men and young boys who deal with eating disorders and disordered eating as well. And it's just really hard to grow up in that environment and develop a positive relationship with food. And And food is, you know, we need it to survive, but it's so easy to eat it in excess or to want to restrict it entirely. And so um, I just know through my personal experience that without having that positive relationship with something that you need to sustain you, it's very challenging to be happy. Yeah, and and I think the same is true for um, people that struggle with their sexuality. You know, you mm-hmm. can't. It's not like drugs or alcohol where you can cut them out completely. Yep. It's part of you that you need to 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 feed yourself yeah. and finding a way to do it that is um, not compulsive. Yeah, exactly. Um, is 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 not easy. So I'm I'm glad um, I'm glad to have you on. Um, where would be a good place to? To start, because I do want to talk about the the link between uh, nutrition and um, mental mental health, um, but I also I don't want the podcast to become too clinical sometimes. So I also like I want to know your story, and so where would where would be a good place to um, start with your story? You want to start from the beginning from your childhood? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, So I did have a pretty normal childhood. I would say my family was, you know, we had our normal level of dysfunction like most families do. Um, I think the most contributory thing for me um, in terms of uh, being a factor in creating this issue that I later had with food, um, arguably later, maybe it was there the whole time, Mm -hmm. Um, is that I, so the two sides of my family that um, I grew up with were, it was my mom's side and my dad's side. My mom's side of the family um, are, my mom is, has always led like a pretty healthy lifestyle for the most part, Um, especially as I got a little bit older. She really started to get into eating properly, you know, ruling out processed foods and stuff like that, exercising. She actually um, got her second degree black belt. Really? Yeah. She and I actually got our first degrees together. So um, You're a black belt? I am. I, I haven't done martial arts in years, but um, when I was, I think I was 15 when we, got, when we got ours together, and then she moved on to her second degree. So she was super health conscious and fit, and um, the family that she came from, um, her parents are... They're vegetarians. They, um, my my grandparents are. I think they're seventy six. And my grandpa did a triathlon last year. Really? Yeah. So they're in incredible shape. Um, but 
they have their food issues for sure. I know that my um, my mom's dad's mother, so my great grandma, would um, like make every. So I'm I'm Jewish, and this is kind of like a um, it was like a typical Jewish household, I guess, in the fact that there was a lot of food pushing, um, and what I guess she would do is make everyone a bunch of food, and then like make you feel bad for having eaten all of it um and she would feed you a bunch and then call you fat and um from the stories that I've heard she didn't allow fat people in her house so I think that my grandfather grew up kind of tormented about food and it still shows up all the time um they'll kind of do a similar thing if we're ever eating dinner over there um make a bunch of food and then maybe comment on like how much we've eaten today or something like that um so that was one side of my family and then the other side my dad's side is um they are both sides of my family are Jewish but they are like the like kind of stereotype of like a loud Jewish family whereas my mom's side is not so much um they're loud they're boisterous they're energetic they're they're high energy if you're not used to it um and then they also are kind of food pushers but um they they're just into like overconsumption really and they're all about never depriving yourself and um, most of the people on my dad's side of the family are obese um, so I kind of grew up in this house with this these like two dueling ideas like restrict and overindulge and I never knew like which one was right or which I should go with and it was so hard to find the balance and um, I have three sisters and um, we all have kind of developed issues with it one way or another and so feel like that's kind of where it started um and I also do you remember how old you were the first time that you thought about food in a context other than um I'm hungry I want to eat I would say all my life I've thought of food as something that can um change my emotions so I think I was always an emotional eater in some way what were the ones that did it for you the foods yeah um, I think I really liked, like, the starchy, warm foods. I remember, like, really liking, like, mashed potatoes or, like, warm bread. Um, and I also, I did, like, everything as a kid. Like, I was not a picky eater. And, and that was another thing that I did was um, I was quite a people pleaser as well. And so if my mom would make something for dinner, I would eat it all because I didn't, I didn't want her to feel bad. I didn't want her to think that she made something that I didn't like. And so... Um, and when I was little, I would tell people what they wanted to hear in terms of, like, what my favorite foods were. Like, I remember telling people for years that my favorite food was broccoli because um, I thought that was what people wanted to hear. Um, and, and then it changed to apples and then, you know, all these healthy foods when really, yeah, it was those, like... Those mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm, those mashed potatoes. Where do, you, where do you think that comes from, the, the, the people pleaser? Um... I do want to say that that's part of just my nature because I'm still that way today. I try really hard... Um, to do what's best for me too um but i i do think that that's something that's in my nature i at this point can't really point to one thing that would have made me that way i don't think and i mean ultimately we never really know what the truth is about anything but it always kind of fascinates me why people are the the way they are yeah um i just had to ask you when you're talking uh, earlier uh, saying that you're a black belt what does it feel like walking down the street knowing you're a black belt Badass would be a really good way of putting it. Um, no, I I think it feels good to know that I can be confident walking down the street at night alone as a female. Um, I 
think it just feels good to know that I don't necessarily need somebody by my side to protect me that like I know how to do this myself. Um, but I will say I have been in situations that have been scary, um, not like being attacked or anything like that. Um, but where I thought that in that kind of situation, I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to kick their ass. But um, I, I didn't. I screamed like a little girl. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it does give you a level of confidence, though, I would say. It, it yeah. would seem very because, you know, as a man, I picture always pictured what it would be like to be a black belt. Yeah. And just it seems like it would allow you to relax in public so much more. Um, and I would imagine being a woman where there is more inherent anxiety mm-hmm. and just being in public. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I would say that, I mean, I have anxiety about plenty of things, most of them being irrational, but I don't think I typically have anxiety about, you know, being in a public place because I think that someone's going to attack me. I don't think I've ever really had that fear. My anxiety comes from other areas, more like socially related. So. Well, you know what? Let's let's um, let's go into a fear list right here. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to be reading the fears of a um, oh of a listener named uh, Nicole. Love Nicole. All right. She says, I'm afraid of the inevitable future house fire that will kill my pets and destroy my life. Why, yes, I have always been hyper alert for any whiff of real or imagined smoke or the sound of crackling. <laughs> okay. I am afraid of secondhand smoke. <laughs> it's, it happens yeah. all the time, the, the, yeah, the synchronicity. Crazy. Um, the... I'm afraid I will breathe in someone else's secondhand smoke and end up developing lung cancer or emphysema, even though I have never touched a cigarette in my life. Uh, I'm afraid of locked-in syndrome. Uh, sleep paralysis is bad enough when it only lasts minutes. I'm afraid I will never have children, but at the same time, I, I am afraid I will have children and completely fuck them up because I had them before I was truly equipped to be a parent or because they will inherit one of my genetic faults. Uh, I'm afraid of showers. My phobia is of stray hairs or dirt in the tub because our tub drain is clogged and our house too messy to get it fixed. I shower about four times a year when I'm staying in a hotel or at someone else's house if they have an immediate, immaculately clean shower. I've heard that fear before from a number of people. Um, I'm afraid I will never meet my soulmate or that being in a really solid, love-filled relationship will just never really work because the men who love me will not be the ones I can love back or vice versa. I'm afraid it will just never match up for me. I think everybody has yeah. that has that fear. Um, I'm afraid that I'm terrible at my job even though I rarely make mistakes. I feel like I only know how to do things but not why. And here is a work one. I, I am afraid that at work, I work in a hospital, um, I will forget to sanitize my hands before entering a patient's room or between pati- patients, which will lead to an outbreak in the hospital, and I will be responsible for multiple deaths. <laughs> wow, that's intense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm afraid my sister will die of a drug overdose, and I won't get to say goodbye. I am afraid that I have genetically inherited the blood disease my mom has and all the efforts I make to try and live a healthy lifestyle, hoping to lead to longevity and quality of life, will only end in me being in constant pain and all those around me who quote unquote had fun while treating their bodies poorly will have grounds to say they were right for not caring about their health in our youth and I was wrong. That was good but not detailed enough. (laughs) That was an awesome one. Uh, I'm afraid that my niece will take after my sister. 
I am deeply afraid of being wrong or being thought of as unintelligent or stupid. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll get cancer or diabetes or some other life-threatening disease and I won't have enough will to live to fight for my life. I am afraid that once I become a registered dietitian, which is my current goal, um, I will still feel I have not done enough and will go as far to get a PhD and will still never feel qualified, smart enough, or good enough. Uh, what What is the degree that you have now? You have a BA? Um, it's a BS in nutrition. BS. And then uh, being an RD, a registered dietitian, is like... Um, what they consider expert in nutrition, and I'm actually starting that process in September. How long does that take? Um, it's an extra year of schooling. Uh, I'm afraid that I will never. I, I'm afraid that I will regret never having children. I have that one too. Yeah, uh, I fear people thinking I don't have my shit together. I'm afraid that my cats will die alone and scared and in pain. <laughs> and she puts in parentheses, probably in a house fire. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that I am that girl who smells terrible and no one will tell her, but they all say it as soon as I leave the room. I have that fear, too. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that someone will choke or have a medical emergency and I will disassociate instead of helping them. Yeah. Uh, I am afraid that something awful will happen during my mental illness happy hour interview, i.e. I will fuck up horribly, and I will have ruined the podcast for myself, therefore ruining one of the things I most look forward to doing during the day. <laughs> Thank you for being honest about that. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that I'm not as unique as I think I am. Uh, I fear eventually needing to go on medication for my depression or anxiety, but I also feel fear finally conceding to the drugs having them work fantastically and then feeling like years of my life were wasted feeling sad and terrified when there was a solution all along so you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't pretty much yeah it's not how the it the brain is. has a, a great <laughs> yeah. way of claiming that territory doesn't mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. it, it does. is so greedy it the, is. The, the sick voice in the brain is yeah. just a land gobbler indeed um i'm afraid that i'll always feel fat and ugly and disgusting uh, I fear that when I call my mom and what was meant to be a two-minute catch-up turns into an hour-and-a-half conversation that I am a burden to her and she wants desperately to get me off the phone but is worried about hurting my feelings or unhinging me in some way. I'm afraid that I will never learn how to keep on top of housework and bills and that I will never do normal human things like sending holiday cards and thank you notes. Mm. I totally yeah, have that one. Relate. Uh, I'm afraid of thinking too highly of myself. I'm afraid that I will never want sex again. I'm afraid that even if my libido comes back, I won't feel attractive enough or be clean enough to enjoy it. I'm afraid that my boyfriend will leave me because of this. And I have to say, I've hugged Nicole and she smells fine. So. <laughs> I'm sure she's glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid of losing the grip I have developed on my relationship with food and that I will begin eating disorder behaviors again. Uh, and her last one is, I'm afraid of ghosts. All right. I have just a few more. Sure. Do you want me to just read yeah, them off real yeah. quick? Uh, I fear flying, but only for the takeoffs and landings. I'm afraid of contracting a blood-transmitted disease like HIV or hepatitis due to being in the wrong place at the wrong time, i.e. in a patient's room as he or she projectile coughs or vomits blood or by accidentally being stuck by an infected needle. And I fear that the eating disorder eating disorder clients that I work with will not trust me to aid in their healing process because I do not have what they think of as an ideal body. Thank you for those. Yeah. Um, so where would be the next place to, t to, to pick up with your, your story? Um, what are some seminal moments from, from childhood that kind of stand out? I guess a lot of the ones that I can think of 
happened to be comments, I guess, that my family members made um, that really stuck with me, um, often related to food, but not always. Um, and then also just when I think of my childhood, I just kind of think of like this insane lack of motivation to do anything. Like, and I, I, it wasn't that I didn't care. Like, like when I wouldn't do well in school, my parents were like, you're not unintelligent. Like, we know that you can do this. Like, why won't you? And I tried to explain, it's not that I don't want to, I want to, but I can't. And that was just something that they didn't understand. And my, you couldn't try harder or you just couldn't succeed more. I I could not try any harder, but not because I wasn't trying my best. It was, looking back, I think that I was depressed as a kid, um, and I think I just didn't have the energy to try at all. Um, so I, I think that's something that I often look back to, is just my dad telling me, like, if you cared, you would do it, and that just wasn't the case. That's the thing that people that, that don't haven't experienced depression, mm -hmm. um, clinical depression, I mean, is they don't understand that it saps just the, even the most basic level of focus and care mm -hmm. to do yeah. something. To I mean, when I'm depressed, I don't care that there's rotting food in the mm -hmm. sink. I don't care that the shower is disgusting. I don't care that the toilet looks, you know, needs mm -hmm. to be scrubbed. And Exactly, yeah. And... And I wanted to care. I really did. I just, I didn't, I didn't know what else I could do, you know. And so um, that was really hard. And I think I also have a fear of like sliding back into that. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think I, I, I really turned stuff around once I went to college. And um, I took a year off to in between high school and college and um, kind of found myself and whatever. And, and that was when I decided to go into nutrition. Um, and I've tried so hard and put so much into everything I've done from that point forward. Um, I think just because of that crazy fear that I'm going to just backslide all the way into, you know, teenage Sam. And I, I would hate for that to happen. Talk, talk about teenage Sam. Yeah. Um, I... I guess high school is what I think of, and I did not enjoy high school. Um, I, I went to high school here in the San Fernando Valley, um, and that's odd. It seems like high school in Los Angeles would be incredibly encouraging and very spiritual. Yes, very spiritual, very non-judgmental, lovely people. No, I I do want to say that if I were me and I were in high school, things would be fine because I would have been able to present day look you. Past, yeah, yeah. If I were twenty-four-year-old me in high school. There's so much that I could have looked past, um, but I just had so much trouble relating to everyone. Um, I I feel like I always had this conflict where I um, I, I grew up like pretty fortunate. Um, we, we never really struggled with finances, um, but my parents were also very aware of like what they were just handing us and so like everyone at my high school got a brand new car when they turned 16 I didn't get a car when I turned 16 um and just stuff like that uh so that made me feel like a little bit of an outcast but then at the same time I was really conflicted with that where it was like I did want nice things but I felt so guilty taking nice things and so um I ended up just having a lot of like hatred for material items which was not so great in a high school here where um 
people it, the high school I went to was like pretty notorious for people having a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and where did you go I went to Calabasas high school mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah so um a lot of great things I'm sure that we can say about it but my experience was was sad um and I just I think my eating disorder really um started to manifest um like my first year of high school and I went to I actually went to a private Jewish school in Northridge um until from kindergarten until eighth grade and then went into public high school at Calabasas and um it was a lot of change and there was a lot of transition and I just remember thinking one day like I had one of those um propel waters and I remember drinking one of those at lunch and being like this makes me kind of full like I could just drink this instead of eating this lunch that my mother so lovingly prepared for me. Um, And, you know, let's just see what happens. So I kind of started doing that and then continued to restrict. Did you Um, get a rush from doing that? I did. And when I think back on it, it was like I looked looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. Like I dreaded it because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep up this restriction. But at the same time, I looked forward to it because it was like another opportunity for me to like cut calories where I could be putting in calories. So like win. Yeah. Another opportunity for me to win. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I kind of lost my train of thought on that one. Um, But yeah, that that's really where I started to see the disorder develop. And then. I started to, I really guess I don't know which one came first, the eating disorder or the depression. Um, But I remember, like, probably sophomore, junior year of high school, it just got so bad that I, I know that teenagers often can't get out of bed in the morning, but this was different. This was like, no, I can't, like, (laughs) I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I was, I was so unhappy and I just... I didn't see a way out of it. And I just remember begging my parents to send me to a therapist. And I didn't end up seeing one until like partway through my senior year. Um, Why so long? Um, my parents, I believe more so my dad. Um, yeah, my dad was not a fan of therapy. He had seen it in his family growing up, um, not do anything for his family, but I don't know. I'm a really firm believer that you like you get out of it what you put into it. And if you're not ready to change and you're not ready to heal, then therapy's not gonna do anything for you. If you're just gonna sit and talk about your problems and not work toward a solution, nothing's gonna change. I and, agree hundred percent. Yeah. So I feel like that's what he was exposed to and because of that he had these ideas that therapy doesn't work and that you're just getting yourself addicted to it I remember him saying that a lot that um like he was worried that I would become addicted to therapy and have to go for the rest of my life and I will say that is a possibility I may have even if it's just checking in with a therapist once a month but I'm okay with that when the alternative is so horrible isn't if of all the things you could be addicted to I would say being addicted to therapy is probably yeah. one of the least I'd be happy to be addicted to dangerous therapy. things you could be yeah. become addicted to. Exactly, I agree. So um, and a good therapist, I think, will sense when you're sitting down and giving up, yeah, and just wanting to stay stuck in your story mm-hmm. and being a victim. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think it's really important to, if you feel therapy is not working for you, try someone else because 
you have to find the right match. If you're not comfortable with someone or you feel like they're not giving you proper feedback, switch. Like, and I know as a people pleaser, I know that that's very hard um, to like kind of fire your therapist or um, tell them that you think you need to move on, but they're professionals and this is what they do. And their end goal is to make you happy. And so if that's what is going to help you. If that upsets them, they're a shitty therapist. They're not a good therapist and they deserve to be fired. Yeah. So it's like you can't can't lose, really. Yeah, absolutely. So. And it it doesn't necessarily even mean that they're, if you move on, that they're a shitty therapist. They're just, it's not the right vibe for you. Exactly. Everybody's on a certain wavelength Mm -hmm. and it's what wavelength kind of Mm -hmm. stirs stuff in you that can come up and come out. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I eventually ended up seeing, uh, I worked with a dietitian um, for my food stuff and that actually didn't come up until my youngest sister who um, has had struggled with her weight for a long time. Um, My mom started sending her to a dietitian to help her kind of get her weight under control. And when I heard that, I was like, I want to go to a dietitian because I want to lose weight. Um, And this was, I had been restricting in kind of like a restrict binge cycle um, for probably about three years at that point. Did you point. purge or just binge? I did not purge until later. Um, my, I, I did abuse laxatives um, after I graduated from high school. I was traveling, and I think it was just a lot on me, and that was the first time I ever did that. That sounds like such a brutally high-maintenance way to... Yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Um, it, was, it was not pleasant. I mean... G- don't you always have to kind of be near a toilet if if you're going to do that? I did it. Um, I had my my tactics down. Like I figured out. Um, and there's something that is there. This is part of the rush I get. It's just like the planning of it um, or that I would get. It, it's kind of just the planning of it. Like, OK, I can figure out what time I can take these at and then what time they'll affect me at where I can be at this point. Um, so what I had figured out is, OK, if I take these before... I, I go to bed, um, then I'll either wake up. I rarely woke up in the middle of the night, but I would usually wake up in the morning. Um, and it, I mean, I would be passed out on the bathroom floor because it was just, I mean, my body didn't need to be evacuated like that. And so, um, I would lose a ton of fluids, um, and I was actually overseas at the time, and so uh, drinking water was not as readily available. And um, Where were you? I was in Kenya for most of it, in Australia for part of it. Um, and, yeah, it's switching my diet there, too, I think, is really what kind of messed me up. Because um, I felt like I had kind of gotten a, a handle on it, and then I went, and not only did I change continents um, and have all of these changes, but the diet was just um, meant to keep you full. And when you're eating that three times a day, it it can cause some weight change. Um, And my body was still kind of used to being restricted in its food intake. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it's so unhealthy. It's so bad for you. Um, And and I just want to talk for for a second about the rush that you got planning it, which is so typical Mm -hmm. of addiction. It's. I remember when I would like go score an ounce of weed. I would be high, like exchanging the money. Mm-hmm. I would be high driving home from the dealer's house with the with the weed, knowing that 
mm-hmm. I'm I'm taken care of. That yeah. that sense of control. I've mm-hmm. I my happiness is now within grasp. It's in the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. And it was sometimes it would almost be like um and this is probably more so with um pornography. Uh, it would be almost like uh, I would almost it would be like an adrenaline rush where some type of I would almost get like shaky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, something similar that I remember doing is like so my mom would pack me a lunch most days and I would take it to school and put it in my locker and never touch it. And um, I remember sneaking out of class. Um, like saying I was going to the bathroom or something and instead of going to the bathroom I'd go to my locker every like once a week and clean out all of the lunches that I had not eaten oh my god the rush that I would get from that just uh, it felt like success like a jackpot of your strength it was like in my hands I had all that I had restricted it was like a visible thing for me and I was like like look at what you've done like my eating disorder was loud and telling me that you had succeeded by not consuming all of this food that otherwise would have just made you fat and and not even thinking for a second maybe that you were abandoning yourself in your most basic most basic of needs yeah yeah never once did I think that in fact I felt like the opposite when I was feeding myself. It was just constantly beating myself up. Like, I can't believe you ate that today. Like, you piece of shit. Can't you make it one day without eating? When, yeah. Addiction has a genius way of reversing the polarity on yeah. on the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, th- that, that getting the rush from the ritual of it, um, to me, is proof that addictions can be overcome because clearly if you're getting high from the ritual of something then then there is the potential for you to feel peace and calm from something healthy being mm-hmm. substituted for that maybe yeah. not that rush but g- a good feeling in yeah. yourself yeah absolutely i i have kind of heard people say like oh you just replace one addiction with another in reference to a number of types of addictions and and their replacements but the fact is like if you i i don't i'm not an expert at all but my thoughts are if you have the mind of an addict and you have the makeup of an addict maybe that's what you need and maybe you need to replace it with a healthy addiction as hard as that can be but yeah that it can be challenging, too, to find what that thing is because mm-hmm. um, so many, I mean, anything really in excess is going to be harmful. But Yeah. You know, people, uh, a lot of times then will start, like I'll see people that have quit drugs and alcohol and they're running 12 miles a day right, from exactly. having not exercised at all. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's not sustainable. Right. That's maybe a very rare percentage mm-hmm. of people that's sustainable, but yeah. I think I think if we just go from one thing distracting us to the next thing distracting us, it's we're event, we're eventually going to have to look at what we're trying to avoid feeling, what overwhelming feelings we have no coping mechanisms for. Right. Yeah. And, um, um, so what what would be the next? Um, did was there was there more to um, talking um, about that in, in, oh, in high school? So oh, so I started talking about I I went to see a dietitian because yeah. I wanted to lose weight. Um, and I went into the dietitian's office and she started to ask me, trying to get like a diet recall from me, trying to just ask like, what did you eat yesterday? Like, what do you typically eat? And 
I couldn't tell her. I was you like, should have just showed her the picture of your locker. Right? Inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, I threw away all of this. Does that count for your, your recall at all? Um, no, but I I couldn't recall anything. I just was like, I don't I don't know. Like, I don't know what I ate. Were and... you getting any uh, positive reinforcement from outside oh of yourself? Oh, my God, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Talk about that. So, I mean, well, the thing is, I, I grew up being like a chubby kid um i was i was definitely overweight particularly i gained a lot of weight my freshman during my freshman year of high school like before i started restricting um and so people saw me losing weight and they were like wow you look great what have you been doing like you look fabulous and um and especially members of my family because they're i mean they're always working to lose weight you know they they did Ugh, every diet in the book, um, major yo-yo dieters, and and they always noticed that I would lose weight. Um, and yeah, getting that reinforcement, it was like a part of me was like, oh, awesome, I got to keep doing this. But another part of me was like a little bit angry because I was like, I'm sick. Like, do you guys not understand that I'm sick? And you're telling me how great I look. Like that felt really awful. That felt that made me feel like I had to keep starving myself to get down to a weight where like giving me a disease diagnosis would be acceptable. So you wanted to, to reach the point where when you stepped on the scale, it said cry for help. <laughs> oh, desperately. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so at the, the dietitian, I, I couldn't come up with a recall and she kind of just started going through foods and she's like, do you eat this? Uh, and I was like, no. And she listed all these foods. Do you eat this? Do you eat that? Do you eat that? And I said no to all of them. Um, and I, the more we started talking about it, I started crying, and I got really emotional, and she was kind of like, okay, I'm not really sure what this is about, and I, I went back to see her the next time, and as soon as we started talking, I think my mom left the office, and we, the two of us started talking about food again, and I got emotional again, um, and she kind of noted how I have more of an emotional response to food than is maybe typical, and... Um, I don't know if it was in that session or in a following one, but ended up diagnosing me with a disorder. Um, and what was actually frustrating looking back now is that she diagnosed me with um, compulsive overeating, which I believe is now what they call binge eating disorder. Um, and I, because I, I was like, well, yeah, I'm not thin enough to be anorexic or bulimic. And so, yeah, I have compulsive I'm overeating. A pig. Yeah. Now my problem is I'm a pig. Yeah, I can't stop shoving food in my pie hole. So <laughs> that's clearly the issue. Um, but I was also very dishonest with her. And I told her that um, I would have binges where like a binge for me was more like eating like a normal amount of food or probably even less than that. But it felt like in my body, it felt like a binge because I was so not used to having food. Um, and then I did not tell her about the periods of starvation. And then later down the road, once I saw different therapists, um, she was my dietitian. I also saw a therapist at that time and told her the same things. Um, but then once I had therapists later down the line, I was more honest with them and they agreed that I did not have compulsive overeating. Um, and so, so yeah, that was kind of the start of, of all of the change of everything. Um, and, and then it was actually when I was in Kenya that I realized, um, I had a couple, a couple, a number of realizations over there um, and kind of just saw, firstly, um, 
just that we like we have it pretty good over here in America um and that we I actually firstly learned to appreciate my material things whereas before I was so conflicted with um hating them and wanting them like I I just realized like it's nice that I get to put on jewelry in the morning sometimes um and then I also realized like at home I have all the tools that I need and I can conquer anything at home even my weight and my issues with food um so that helped me toward nutrition and then also um, I was working with kids over there and I just had a really limited knowledge of like nutritional needs of kids just kind of from working with the dietitian that that had helped me in the beginning um with that limited knowledge I I was like what they're eating is not they were on a diet of like rice and potatoes and it was just like it's keeping their bellies full but no nutrients and once I learned about nutrient deficiencies looking back it was like yeah they had all of those um so I that was the the purpose you were there was to aid this dietitian and no um sorry the dietitian I was working with in reference to the dietitian who um like my dietitian. Oh, I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. What, what, um, what was the purpose of your trip to Kenya I, and Australia? I was actually doing a volunteer trip. Um, I like met a volunteer group over there, and we were just teaching at um, schools and orphanages. And um, the food thing was kind of a side project because the other teachers and I just realized like, um, like the, these kids aren't getting adequate nutrients. And so, had you um, decided that you wanted to go in nutrition before? I then? hadn't. So I had. I was still thinking about journalism. I actually had applied to the college that I ended up going to, and um, I I accepted there in journalism and then sent the dean a letter asking if I could defer for a year um, to go and pursue this this trip in Kenya. And um, so once I and had... The purpose of which, when you set out to do it, was... The, the trip? Yeah. Um, just I was going to do a volunteer program over okay. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, but I mean, like specifically, what was the, the, the volunteer thing So what, to, to do? What did you think you were going to be doing when you were over there? I signed up uh, with a volunteer program to work with kids um, in orphanages and schools. And um, that I, I might be teaching, I might be helping in, in a kitchen or helping cleaning, um, things like that. And okay, so just kind of a broad thing. Yeah, just whatever helping. was needed, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of meeting the needs of the community. Um, and so, yeah, once I was there and we ended up working on their diet, um, one of the teachers said to me, you know about nutrition, like as I was explaining the food groups and everything to them, and he's like, you'll take care of that for us. And it was kind of in that moment that I was like, I do know nutrition. Like, I, I can help them with this. This is a way that I can aid them. And um, so that that was really the moment when I knew I wanted to do something in nutrition, and I just gained more direction as my career moved forward, I guess. so. Can you talk about what it, what it feels like when you go to do volunteer work? What you get out of it, what you feel, what you experience um, mentally, physically, spiritually emotionally yeah um well I actually because you know I was 18 when I did that and and people often comment to me like wow that that's a a really amazing thing that you did at such a young age um and I feel a little bit like dishonest when people say that to me and my response is usually you know what I did this so much more for me than than for other people as much as I do love helping people like I felt so good doing it and that was what where I wanted to be um so I do think it just helps to first see what people live like elsewhere whether that is in another country or 
down the street, <laughs> people who are in a different socioeconomic class than you are. Um, I, I think it's just important to expose yourself and in your children. Like my parents did volunteer work with us sometimes as kids. Um, I think it was really important for us to get that exposure to the way other people live. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's just eye-opening. There's also a, a really um, strong history in the Jewish culture of volunteering yeah and yeah caring, and that's... caring for underdogs do you do you think that comes from being historically persecuted I think it probably does and um, the fact that I feel we really kind of lifted ourselves up by our own bootstraps and um, and I think because of that yeah in our culture there is a really a lot that pushes us toward uh, volunteer work and helping others and Actually, my motivation to go to Kenya stemmed from uh, my senior year in high school. I was really involved with my temple's youth group, um, and I was like the um, like the charity part. I was like the chair of that for my temple, and we did a lot of work with um, like Darfur and stuff. And that's what uh, sparked my interest in Africa in general. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, a lot of those values I retained, I think, from my Jewish upbringing and from my involvement in that. And how did what did you learn, if anything, about yourself doing doing that volunteer work, being over there? What? Because I know for me, like if I if I set out to do something nice for somebody, go to volunteer, do something, it almost always opens some type of door. There's some type of gift that I get out of it, and I and I totally relate to what you said about mm-hmm. I do it for selfish reasons. It makes me feel good. It, it yeah. gets me out of myself. But I want to know. I want to know your experience and what you feel in your body and your mind when you're in that place of just being present Mm -hmm. helping yeah um i think i don't know i just feel like there's something i can give to other people and i I think that is a little bit of an ego boost like it it just feels like i don't know interacting with people interacting with people in general is great and then when you don't have the pressure of like this is your job or this is a social situation or something like that. It's so nice to interact with people without those pretenses. Would it be fair to to say that any emptiness that you're feeling goes away when you're in that, sure. in that moment? Yeah. I, And I think there's so much gratitude for what you're doing that it, it kind of helps fill those empty spaces with love. And so... Um, yeah, I definitely think that's true. I I get this feeling too. I get that feeling of love and connectedness mm-hmm. to the to the universe. I feel the emptiness disappear, and one of the greatest things is I feel that feeling leave me that I'm three steps behind the universe. Yes, that mm-hmm. I've blown it. Yeah, I feel like this is absolutely where I'm supposed to be because mm-hmm. I think there's something genetic in us that when we help each other and we're of service and we feel that sense of purpose, it's like a switch gets flipped mm-hmm. and. That's who the, we really are. Mm-hmm. That's who, if we uncovered all the things that we think society, we're supposed to be in society and mm-hmm. we need to be to, to be safe in the future and we get pull all those layers away, that mm-hmm. that is who we are deep inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I agree with that. And, and I feel that way to strip club. <laughs> Our next subject. Yeah, I feel that way to strip club too. <laughs> Have you ever been to a strip club? I haven't. You're not missing much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm good with it. Uh, I, I, I went to a strip club. Um, I had done a um, a fundraiser for uh, 
an abortion rights place in Georgia, and it was me and I think another guy and six feminist lesbians, and we went to a strip club, and uh, it was it was a trip. See, it's experiences like that that I'm like, I'd be open to going to a strip club just to have that story. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember going to the bar to get a drink, and the next thing I remember was I was still at the bar, and my head was on the bar, and I had basically passed out at the bar oh, and missed, I the, been there? missed pretty much the entire the entire thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've have uh, I have had some brief experience with uh, alcohol and overconsumption as well as as we were kind of talking about you know addictions leading into another one. Um, yeah. Is there anything you want to touch on there? Um, I think you know in college, of course, we all party. Um, most of us, anyway. Uh, I, I think I just, I tended to overdo it. I uh, really struggled with, like my mom describes it, because she struggled with something similar, um, as like uh, not having that that turn off valve. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't have the switch. Um, it was like I could never start, and then I'd be good, or I would start and wake up the next morning and not know what happened, um, and so. I did that. I started drinking uh, like socially when I was about seventeen, um, and then at it was. I remember it was my birthday's in June, and it was right after my twenty-second birthday in June. So it was like a couple weeks after that. I was like, I have to stop this. Like I just. I remember I woke up one morning and I had been hanging out with some new people, um, and I remember leaving this girl's house, and that was it. And apparently all this stuff had happened. Like I got kicked out of a bar because I was too drunk and um, my roommate had to come and pick me up. And I also was told that I like cussed somebody out, which is not characteristic of me at all. Um, I don't think I've ever done that sober. And so um, I just woke up that morning and I was like, this has to change. Like, I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't feel good. Um, I like both physically and emotionally. I just feel awful. Um, and so I, I talked to my therapist about it that week and she suggested, um, cause you know, I was still 22. I wasn't ready to start going to AA or like cut out alcohol entirely. And she was like, what if you cut out hard alcohol? I was like, okay, I think I can do that. Cause at least like, you know, when they're when you're doing shots it's like so much easier to just keep going and um if you're drinking beer like at least there's the signal like oh i'm full maybe i'll stop because i'm full there's a pile of of... cans next to me right there's that yeah exactly all the pint glasses might be a you make your mistake over a longer period of time yes yeah so um it'll take longer to get as drunk on beer so um i tried that and that was that was like my miracle solution um that was like a pretty big moment for me when I decided to stop doing that and I will say that a lot of my friends were not that supportive of it they'd still try to give me hard alcohol and give me shots and stuff like that even though I explained my reasoning um and that was frustrating but um I I know who my true friends were so many people don't understand Uh, you'd be amazed how many doctors have no clue as to addiction like a friend of mine was just telling me he um his doctor prescribed him clonopin and and he said, uh, "Do you have anything else? Because I'm an addict." And he said, "No, you'll be okay." <laughs> oh. I just want to go. I just want to go smack that I guy know. and go. Yep. God, you don't have the 
most basic clue. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. And the same thing kind of transfers over with, um, don't want to hate on physicians, but physicians and, and food and nutrition, too. Sometimes the things that they suggest, I'm just like, that's going to kill him, but that's okay yeah. <laughs> if you're all right with it. Yeah, uh, the thing the thing about addiction there there is a different different chemical process that happens in somebody who is who is an addict mm-hmm. when that thing gets in their body it creates the craving for more sure, of yeah. that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of oh you, logically you'll know when you have four. No, your mm-hmm. body is going to feel like it has had negative one. Yeah, I know. I wish that there is a way. We need a really good metaphor to explain to people who don't, haven't experienced it firsthand what that feels like. Yeah. I imagine it's hard to understand if you haven't. It isn't. It's it. hard to understand when it's in within yourself. Oh yeah. Be- because sure. I-, I could never understand why um, I I the room would almost be spinning, and the only thing I could think about mm-hmm. was finding a joint and getting another pint of beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Yeah. It's insanity. It is, yeah, I know that that is what it feels like, and and that's what it feels like when you're going through it. You're just like, I I feel insane. You feel like you're watching yourself, going, "What are you doing?" Exactly. Come on. Yep. And I I do still feel that sometimes. I I cut out hard alcohol for a few years, and then um, I decided just recently in like the last few months that I was going to kind of start easing it back in. I still really don't drink it if we're like going out for a big night because I know it'll be harder to control. But I still feel myself do that sometimes where I'm like, I'm good. Why do I want another drink? And And, and that drug, uh, I think it's oxytocin that -hmm. gets released um, when you're going through the ritual of your addiction. Then you become addicted to that drug that is so now you're addicted to a drug that your brain produces. Yeah, right. You want to talk about unmanageable. I know. Yeah, and oxytocin is what like um, binds you to things. It's like what... Um, it's what young mothers experience mm-hmm. when they hold exactly. their baby. So it can be a very positive it's very, thing. Yeah, but it's very powerful. Very, very mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, you're kind of working against your mind. And I, I've heard, I think it, it's on, on the podcast, I've heard it before, saying, you know, you can't go to your mind to fix your mind. Like, Mm-mm. you can't... I like thinking about it as like, um, like you can't go to a broken brain to fix a broken, a broken brain. Um, like I, I said that in a support group and, um, they, they didn't really like that. I used the word broken and I was like, well, think about it like a computer. You can't Google how to fix your computer. If your computer is broken, that doesn't mean right. you can't fix the computer, yeah. but you can't use it to a fix frozen, itself. A frozen computer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what, do you still go to support groups or was that just a temporary It was thing? just, um, I only went once. The only reason I didn't, there are a few reasons I didn't go back, I'll say, actually. Um, one of the main reasons is it's in the middle of the day. I happen to have that day off, so I tried it out. Um, but typically I'm not available at that time. Um, I did think it was really helpful, but I also felt like it was hard for me to relate to a lot of the people in the group and like the energy in the group gave me a little bit of anxiety, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I just, I think support groups are probably a lot like therapists where you kind of need to try out a few and see which one fits for you. And they become more comfortable over time. That's the other thing I would really say because (laughs) my favorite support group right now um, I couldn't wait to leave the first four months I was there. Really? Oh, yeah. It's wow. literally the second it was over, uh-huh. I was out the door. N- no saying hi to anybody. No going out for food afterwards. And now 
this room is the safest place on the planet wow. for me. It literally feels like a big, awesome hmm. pillow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope to kind of try out some new ones and see how it goes. I, I think they're really valuable. I'm really glad that I tried one out. So They are the greatest. Yeah. I cannot. I can't. A good one. Yeah. Is um, it's where I find what I call. God, yeah. whatever you want to call it, it's where I was introduced to unconditional love yeah. and that mm-hmm. feeling of just being able to collapse and have people, you know, metaphor metaphorically catch yeah. you mm-hmm. and 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 have fun and be able to laugh about. It. There's nothing like laughing about darkness from your past with a group of people who have also lived who that. just There's get it. Nothing, uh-huh. nothing like it. You feel a a sense of community unlike anything. Um, yeah. you've ever felt before, or I should say I have and the yeah. other people that I know from, from that group. Yeah, and it being a safe place, too. I think that's so important because while it's great if, if some of us have those few friends that we can talk to about stuff like this, meeting a new person, it's going to take a while before you get to that place where you can talk about that and in a support group. like That's just what it's made for. Yeah, so. by, the, by the third week of going there, you may feel like the, there's somebody that is your long-lost soulmate yeah. that yeah. has a story that's similar to yours or yeah. says some a, a kind sentence to you that just goes right to your mm-hmm. right to your just very soul yeah. and you feel felt and heard yeah. and accepted and yeah and it takes all the fear away yeah yeah there's, there's so nothing like that i would definitely like to make it a more regular part of my life so i'm going to work on that's that that's awesome yeah yeah i hope i don't um get on my soapbox too much about it but i feel like i almost i almost can't if i if there's any mistake i can make doing the podcast it would be that i talk about support groups or therapy the benefits of them too much um that's a that's a mistake i'm comfortable i'm comfortable making i appreciate as a listener i appreciate it i think that it it i i just made a move recently um and so i not that recently like eight months ago but um i lost my therapist because i moved and um it was really listening to the podcast and that was what reminded me like a it's okay to go back into that it doesn't mean that you're more fucked up than you were before um and b that it's necessary sometimes and so go find someone who works for you and and that was a major motivator for me oh good yeah i love i love hearing that yeah did you have um, some surveys that you I wanted do have to some uh, surveys. Yeah. talk about? Surveys um, that you related to? Let's see. There were a couple. Um, so this one was the um, the shouldn't feel this way mm-hmm. survey. Yeah, this was um, from someone who calls themselves K. Um, and there's just a part of this one that I w- wanted to read, and it said. I'm supposed to feel happy about growing up in a loving family, but I don't. I feel frustrated that I don't have a reason to feel the way I do. And I have felt that way so many times. Um, Just things that, like, it pains me to even admit that I have had these thoughts. But when I think about, like, a close friend or a family member or something like that dying, it almost, of course I don't want that to happen, but it almost feels like, that would be almost a relief because then I'd have a reason to cry all the time. Like it would make sense that I feel this way. And so I, I just really relate to that quite a lot. That, I, I think yeah. a lot of people do. A lot of people have a sadness or an emptiness inside them that they can't put their finger on. Mm-hmm. And 
And then not only do you have the sadness inside you, but you don't have any way to feel compassion about yourself because you feel like you need an excuse to feel compassion about yourself right. for yourself. Yes. Instead of just saying, I'm feeling this and my feelings are fucking valid. Yeah. And I'm not looking to necessarily blame anybody. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm looking for, uh, you know, what might be contributing to yeah. this to help me understand, to understand it. Yeah. But it doesn't, don't let... You know, it's not a crime you have to solve to then be able to feel compassion for yourself. Yeah, that that's a huge hurdle. And sometimes it may be an irrational thing that you're feeling um, that is fine, too, mm -hmm. that, that, that you can just go, oh, OK, my brain or my body are just uh, having a visceral reaction to mm -hmm. this. And it's really not a big deal. I'm yeah. just going to kind of look at this like a, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. one of those pianos that plays itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. So. That's that's a huge one. I totally relate to, the, to, yeah. to that one. Yeah. Um, and that was Kay that said Kay. that? Mm -hmm. Thank, Kay. Thank you, Kay, for, sh for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, this one was another shouldn't feel this way survey. Mm. Um, and this person calls themselves Detective Shoefly. Um, and he or she said, I'm supposed to want to live, but I don't. Well, not exactly. I don't want to die either. Um, and that... At this point in my life, I, I don't feel that way. And I want to uh, let you know, Detective Shoefly, that if, you, if you're working toward any kind of recovery or, or way out, you can find it. I really do believe that. But I did feel like that at one point where it was... There was definitely a point where I, I actively wanted to die. Um, but there was also a point after that where I didn't want to die. I just, like, didn't really care to live. Yeah. Like, I... If if I got hit by a car, like that would be fine. I, I didn't have a motivation to live, but I didn't have the motivation to die either. So, um, yeah. And, and it's tough, but I, I'm happy to say that I experienced, um, probably about a year ago. Um, the first, for the first time I experienced this feeling where I was like, I would like to live. I, I don't know if I was on a plane or something and I had this, this worry that we were going to crash. And for the first time I was like, I would prefer that not happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, that's so there's awesome. hope. <laughs> that's your that, that's your humble prayer to God. God, yeah. if I had my choice, I would prefer I would, we don't nosedive into yeah. an open field. I would rather still be here after this flight. So, so yeah. Um, that's definitely not alone on that one. Um, and then I think I just wrote down a couple of the, like, struggle in a sentence mm -hmm. ones. Um, they were mainly in relation to eating disorders. Um, let's see. Uh, Daisy said, I want out in relation to, I, I believe it was bulimia. Um, someone called Sefi uh, said, being held hostage on a runaway train. Mm. And I, oh, I so relate to that. It's just like, it's going, it's going, it's going, and you can't stop it. Um there's a part of you that doesn't want to try, but there's another part of you that's just desperately trying to. Um, and so that's, yeah. Um, and throwing up is like starting over. When you are depressed enough, you think your body deserves the punishment. Um, and yeah, I, I felt that way when I would abuse laxatives. Like it was, it was like a clean slate. Like that day it was like, okay, I can, you know, I would say I can start over. Like I can start eating healthy now and I can not overeat and then I won't purge later. Um, but then I, I didn't have that 
I'll put willpower in quotes because it's not a question of willpower at that point. Your body is just trying to survive and lead anything. Is there is there an element of perfectionism you think in in food issues? For sure. Yeah. Because it seems like that. It seems like well, I couldn't do. What is the most absolute thing I can do to to make sure that my body is on its goal? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, perfectionism is a big trait that they find in people with eating disorders. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I had this um, tendency to almost like sometimes do the opposite of what I really wanted because I was worried that doing what I really wanted, I would fail. Um, I remember like in high school, I decided that I was going to hate everybody because I didn't think any of them would like me. And so I'd rather hate them first. And it almost feels like something like that that I'm doing. And so, um, yeah. And then the second part of what this person said, uh, when you are depressed enough, you think your body deserves the punishment. Um, I also, in my teenage years, um, had some, I did like self-mutilation, cutting and stuff like that. And that, it bothered me so much and still bothers me when people say like, oh, that person's doing that for attention. Oh, that's not what that's it is. So... And I, I think, you know, on your podcast, that audience, I'm preaching to the choir right now. Um, but... I mean, that's not what it, what it is. There's so many other ways to get attention. So many other ways. Um, and Telling endless stories about yourself. That's how you get attention. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I know people who did that as a cry for help, um, who would do it in visible places just to kind of show like, look, I do have visible scars. And I think that, that that's a lot of sometimes where that idea that people are doing it for attention comes from is that like you're you're just trying to show people because the scars on the inside no one else can see Mm -hmm. and so you feel like you have to show people like look there are scars here help me yeah Um, i would say that's asking asking for help in a primitive way yeah more than yeah but i i never really identified with that um when i was going through a lot of that and um the this is more how i felt was that i was giving it to my body because it deserved the punishment um like if i wasn't able to stick to a diet regimen that i had allowed for myself or I did something awkward socially or something it, it, it I deserved it almost like so. your almost like your your body was like a slow sibling you know like a mentally deficient sibling mm-hmm. that you were attached to and yeah. you were just so tired of its flaws yeah you, you just wanted to beat it, it. Mm-hmm. yeah and it's a great way of putting it because if you think about that like I know if I think about my siblings, like I would never, I don't care how slow they are, I would never treat them that way. But when it's something that's inside you, you have no problem doing that. And yeah, it's just so sad the way we treat ourselves sometimes. It, it really is. And, and our, what we dislike about our bodies, we, we, uh, we tend to isolate it and not take it at, and see the big picture as a whole of who, what our vibe is, what mm-hmm. our personality is like, what our the, the, what we look like from head to toe all at once, instead of just focusing in on our you know our ears are too big or yeah. our hairline is weird. Nobody looks at us that way. Most normal people don't look at us. They no. just kind of feel our energy and look at us as as a whole. And I think there's also um, we never know truly the positive energy that we can give off to other people. We mm-hmm. think we think we know how other people feel being around us, but I think we almost always underestimate how other people feel about us. Yeah. Um, because we, like you've met that person 
who has incredibly low self-esteem and you love being around that person. They're like, oh yeah, you can't believe that that person feels bad about themselves, mm-hmm. but you can't make them see that. You can't, yeah. it, it's so hard to describe to them what it is that you love about them because they will, they've never felt that way about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, they're very close people to me who are that person that you just described. I have been that person too and it's I the reason that I can relate to those loved ones in my life who feel that way is because I was in the position where I hated myself and I I remember at the time I had a boyfriend who thought the world of me and loved me so much and he when I would talk about my body issues with him he couldn't understand he's like no you look great like what are you talking about and there was no way that I was going to penetrate. Like, I was None. not going to understand. You just think they don't know. Yeah. They just haven't seen it all yet, I guess. They just, they're not seeing what I'm seeing. And so, yeah. yeah. My, my friends in my, I've been going through kind of a bad funk lately. And my mm-hmm. friends in my support group have been calling me and telling me they love me. And, you know, saying that what what the, it is that they love about me. And I hear it intellectually. But because of my depression, I can't absorb it. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't feel it. I still want to isolate i being on the phone is like uh feels like sandpaper oh yeah Uh uh-huh yeah and and that's why i think it's so important to you've got to love yourself because sometimes you're gonna have those times when what other people are saying it's not coming in you're not receiving it i didn't i haven't really talked about it yet but i i do suffer from anxiety um and once the depression was kind of kept you're doing a hell of a job here today i gotta say (laughs) thank you you feel you feel pretty Um, relaxed i feel pretty relaxed yeah i've I've warmed up a little bit um but i i once the depression kind of was kept at bay the anxiety really started to pop up um and that it was then i kind of learned that i felt the depression was something that i was using to maybe mask the anxiety um but the thing is with anxiety at least i'm like up and doing things Mm -hmm. um but anyway uh my parents used to get frustrated with me because as a kid you know we'd be on a vacation and they'd be like okay we're in this store and you can choose one gift that you're going to get from this trip my sisters would be in and out five minutes they'd know what they want 20 minutes later like i'm not that might be putting it like lightly sure i would be standing in the store debating between two or three things terrified to make the wrong decision you know that that makes such sense to me because i think I think perfectionism and anxiety are very closely related. That yeah. fear of making a mistake, that fear that we're, I can't blow this. Yeah, yeah. As something as simple as a souvenir, like which snow globe do I pick? I don't know. So yeah, stuff like that. Really, um, I've gotten a little better about it, but I'm still like, it's really hard for me to decide like where to go to eat. You know, I'm the same yeah. way. With a me- it's like if a menu has five different things that I Ugh. want, it's. It's and this sounds like such an asshole first world problem to have, but my wife will go. Would you just pick it's something? Paralyzing sometimes it is, yeah. So I I know it does, and that's another thing like the first world problem idea. Um, that just it does make me feel bad sometimes about the way I act because I'm like I've seen firsthand in other places in the world like they struggle with so much. How am I sitting here freaking out about what to order off the menu? But like that's what's in us that's who we are and we just have to learn to embrace it a little bit i guess yeah and to let the fear go of choosing the wrong thing because if you do you'll be fine yeah yeah um yeah so i do have a couple of more let's see 
Um, this is still from the struggle in a from, sense. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, food is on my mind 24-7. When I'm done with breakfast, I'm thinking about lunch. After lunch, what's for dinner? I sometimes forget to breathe. I often forget to breathe. Um, I do have this thing where I, um, I literally like forget to breathe. You were saying I, in your email that you related yeah. to the Jamie oh Danbo episode. Oh, my God. It was so good to hear her say that. Um, I... I've had it for such a long time and like since I was probably 10 I remember going to the emergency room one time because I was like I can't breathe like I can't take a deep breath in and we couldn't figure out what it was and the doctor ended up telling me that I was dehydrated and my lungs were like sticking together and that's what it was I think it was probably anxiety um maybe it's a blonde Jewish girl thing there's Sephardic and then there's <laughs> yeah a third yep uh that's probably what it was uh so yeah um I and I, as I think I also mentioned in the email, my because I struggled with my weight, my mom would sometimes um, propose that perhaps it was because I had eaten a little bit too much, and that oh. was why. And <laughs> I hate when people do that. I know, they... I know, and I, I think I have to credit my mom that I think that because sometimes she'll say things to me and she'll preface it with, you know, I. I know this might not be true, but I feel like as your mother, I have to be the person to tell you. Um, and I think it was kind of one of those things that she was just like, I just need to put it out there. And and my mom's amazing. My well, that's certainly best, a better but... way than saying it's because you eat like a pig. Yeah. she. I mean, she didn't say it like that. She did say like, do you think maybe it's because mm-hmm. you 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 overate a little bit? And I'd be like, no, that's not what it is. I, it's not because I overate. But I did think that for a long time. Like every time I... It's hard for me to take a full breath in public sometimes because I worry that not as much now. It's gotten better, but I I do have a little worry that people are looking at me thinking like, oh, that obese girl is having mm-hmm. trouble breathing. My <laughs> so. well, my wife tells me that uh, when I'm that there are times when I snore more than I normally do, and she says, and I think it's when you're overweight. And I thought, oh, that's curious that when I'm hard to look at naked, uh, <laughs> that that might be. Related to, yeah. to to when I'm snoring. Oh, but it's always good to hear. <laughs> she, but I think I think she might she may might be right. Yeah, I I mean there are definitely you know I work in nutrition. I will definitely say that there are some things like that that are related. But you got to listen to your own body. You need like you know what's going on in there. If you're really paying attention, you know. And if it doesn't feel like you're having trouble breathing because you overate, and it feels like anxiety, pay attention to that. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, and just what what this person said about uh, PSM twenty three is who said that, and um, the focusing on food all the time. I remember that. I remember just now. I've been able to kind of let it go a little bit, but um, yeah, it just occupies your mind, and it's hard to let anything else in. So um, there there's a book that was actually recommended to me called The Religion of Thinness. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I really would like to, and it it. Does, You're going to wait till you get down to your target weight to reward yourself yes, with Yes, yes, I'll it. reward myself with a religion of thinness once I get down there to 53 pounds. <laughs> um, just kidding. Please don't ever try to get to 53 pounds, anybody. Um, but, yeah, so it, it basically talks about how becoming thin is really this religion. And it's, you know, there are entire sections of bookstores that are devoted to it there are gurus just like there are like gods in religion and and it's it's really insane how it's developed like that and it does impact every facet of your life um so yeah i i need to read that book um and oh a, a few people said um 
something along the lines of empty and trying to feel the space fill the space than guilt and I definitely definitely felt that with the emotional eating part of it just trying to cram as much in there mm-hmm. um, and another thing that I remember noting is that like I never I never cry when I eat so like if I'm if I was feeling emotional and then I would go grab some ice cream or something um, as soon as I started eating the tears would stop mm. and yeah so it has a kind of a numbing effect oh yeah you're doing something else I mean you know in in meditation like they tell you to focus on your breath um, and that's a really good way of like calming down anxiety for me I know um, I'll focus on the breath because I'm not focusing on whatever it is that I'm feeling that's a great replacement for eating instead because um, that I think that's what I would do to like kind of subconsciously without realizing it in order to quiet whatever was going on in my mind which was racing all the time is still racing all the time sometimes um, I would just eat and then I could focus on that and wouldn't have to think about anything else. What are the the common uh, racing negative thoughts, uh, negative self thoughts you Um, have? I have, well, a lot of the racing thoughts end up being like things that like speculation, like I speculate a lot and I create stories in my head of like how conversations are going to go. So that's what like I have trouble sleeping sometimes because of that. Um, Some of the negative self-talk I have though is... um, you know, I I feel like I'm quite recovered when it comes to my eating disorder, um, but it's still there. The voice is still there every day, and so there's a lot of like, you're not thin enough. You don't you don't look good. You are ugly, and and just you're not good enough. All of that together means that I'm not good enough, and um, that's the bulk of it. That you know that I don't deserve to be loved by those around me. And I don't know if we can ever get those voices to completely go away, but I know we can affect the volume of them. And Definitely. And we can get mm-hmm. some other positive voices in there that and yeah. and, and boost the volume of those. I know sure. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that is what it's about. It's about, A, I think being able to turn them down and B, recognizing, because at a point I couldn't recognize that that was not me. And that that wasn't reality. Yeah, that that wasn't real. Um, now I can hear a little bit better okay, that's Ed talking, that's not me. And so um, I can try to ignore you a little bit or try to fight you sometimes. And um, that's it's important to make that distinction. It really is. And I think most parents probably know this, but, you know, because kids are such little sponges, mm-hmm. they take things that that you say to heart so deeply. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed on the podcast or met in support groups whose parents said something that that parent never remembers it, but it burned its way into that that kid's psyche. Oh, I have a number of those, yeah. Um, Any any you want to share? Sure. Um, So I I do want to say I, like, almost feel bad saying this stuff about my parents because they're amazing. Like, I could not ask for better parents and I know that they did the absolute best that they could do at the time with the tools that they had but there are a couple of things that they said that definitely were very ingrained in me um one time my dad um told me that he pointed out how you will often see a kind of unattractive man maybe an overweight man with a really attractive uh female but you'll never see it the other way around and that to me was like oh my gosh that means that I if I'm not attractive if I'm not thin enough if I don't look like all of these women which I never did I was always I always looked different from them and 
that means that I'm not going to ever find an attractive man or a man who I love. Like, that's that's what really became ingrained in me. And I brought that up to him, actually, just a few years ago. He said that when I was a little, little kid, and he didn't even remember saying it. And he was shocked that he would even say it. And so um, that was one. I remember uh, one time we were sitting at dinner, and I asked if uh, my dad would pass me the bread basket. And he looked at me, and he made, like, a fat face at me. He went, like, mm-hmm. like puffed up his cheeks, um, like, to indicate that I was going to get fat if I kept eating bread. Um, a lot of things like that. Um, one time, my mom told me, I was just, I think I was, like, 10 or so, probably, and I, I was just, like, rambling. Like, I talked a lot as a little kid, and then there was a certain point at which I just stopped um, and I was really quiet and became really introverted. And then I remember, I just recently kind of traced it back to this, where I was um, in, I was actually in the pantry, in the food pantry <laughs> uh, with my mom. I think she was trying to help me, like, find a snack or something. And I just kept rambling about stuff. And she just looked at me and she goes, stop talking. <laughs> Because she was probably frustrated. It was the end of a long day. I'm sure she was just like, I would love to get away from my kids for a little bit because there were a number of us. Um, I can't imagine how many parents want to say that on a daily basis. I know. And she said it. And so that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So stuff like that. I And I know as a parent, I will do that. Absolutely. As, as everyone will. So All parents are going to are gonna mistake, make mistakes or, you know, quote unquote mistakes, be human hurt their kids. Yeah. And I but I but I think it's important for us to to go back and talk about those things that hurt so we can we can process it and we can maybe move on mm-hmm. and and not kind of hold on to that. Yeah. Maybe that helps turn the volume down in that voice that's in our head. Mm-hmm. We can go, "Oh, that's where it comes from." Yeah. And I'm not yeah. not mining this so that I can make my mom feel bad the next time I see her. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing it so that I can uh, have a mind that's more quiet. Yeah, absolutely. And I can be nicer to myself. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, I love this podcast for that too because it's it's a way for people to voice things like that and say them out loud or even if you're just listening, hearing other people say them out loud that it's like, yeah, you know this happens and it's good to talk about it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and there were a couple of survey, uh, this from the same survey, I think, um, about anxiety that I wrote down. Mm-hmm. Um, the feeling I have to pee and the knowledge there is no bathroom for miles. Mm. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Um, a, because I'm a frequent peer, but <laughs> B, because it's like this feeling that like you have to get somewhere, but you know that you can't get there in time. And it's just, oh, it's terrifying. Like, and not, not just as it relates to going to the bathroom, but <laughs> just in general in life, like you're going somewhere and you just feel like it's never going to be quick enough. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Super anxiety provoking. And like the stakes are gigantic. Mm-hmm. There really isn't anything else in the world that matters at that point. Right. Other yeah. Than that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The next one I wrote down is like, I am jumping off a really high ledge for the first time. Um, yeah. So, I, I yeah. read that one on the podcast. Oh, did I rem- you? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I really related to that one. I was yeah. like, yes, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like anything, any. Anything new that I'm trying, but even if it's just walking into work, not knowing who I'm going to see, not knowing what's going to happen that day, it just feels like, yeah, like anything could happen. A gargoyle is going to come out of my desk drawer. Right, because that's totally going to happen. So, um, like being inside a glass box filling up with water was another one. Yeah, yeah. So terrifying and really just, yeah, 
great uh, description of what anxiety mm-hmm. feels like. Um, somebody said crippled by indecision, which I already talked about, is uh, a big thing for me. Um, and anxiety is worrying about worrying about that thing you forgot to worry about. <laughs> oh, um, that is a great one. Yeah, which was funny. It was uh, written by someone named Anya, and that's my sister's name. So yeah. it's like, this is this one's meant to be. Um, yeah. So those are great. Yeah, I I love those surveys, and it was a pleasure to read through them. Good. So, yeah. Yeah, I want to encourage people to go to the website and fill those out and uh, and see how other people. You don't have to take it to see how other people responded mm-hmm. to them, um, but it's uh, endlessly fascinating to to me, and always makes me feel a little less alone and more more connected to. Uh, my fellow man when I go through that and because yeah. I'm reminded oh I'm not the only one going through shit mm-hmm. exactly yeah that's how I felt uh, any seminal moments that we missed that you want to uh, touch on um, I think that we covered most of them yeah I can't think of anything too big like like I mentioned like um, I don't have any specific traumas that happened as a child and and so nothing well, I think really it's good to have to. guests on sometimes yeah. where there isn't anything because yeah. sometimes sometimes there isn't there isn't yeah. you know or yeah. if there is it hasn't revealed itself yet right and sometimes it's just peeling those layers away mm-hmm. gets us closer to something if there is something down down yeah. there yeah. Um, did you um, did you would you talk briefly about maybe give some tips on nutrition and people who struggle with their mental health? Yeah. Um, So I do want to just reiterate that I'm not a registered dietitian, so I'm not an expert. Uh, Please don't take anything I say as medical advice. But you do have your your BS in nutrition. But I do have my BS in nutrition. I I currently work in a couple of clinical nutrition settings, so I I am well-versed and I have a strong background. Um, But... Yeah, registered dietitians are the experts, um, but I will definitely talk about it. Um, you know, I think that in terms of maintaining your mental sanity when it comes to food and eating, you have to do what works for you. And I don't know, I, I'm a really big believer in intuitive eating and mindfulness. Um, so in, intuitive eating, in case people don't know, is... Um, it's basically listening to your body, which sounds simple, but is actually very difficult because most people don't. <laughs> um, they play the shoulda. Yeah. Shoulda, should, should, should. I should order yeah. this. I want this. Or the, you know, oh, it's 12 o'clock. I, I need to eat lunch now instead of it's 1130 and I'm hungry. I think I'm going to have Oh, so you're now. talking more about the frequency that you eat than what both, you eat. Both. Oh, okay. Both things. Um, yeah. How often you eat what you're going to eat. Um, I, I think a lot of the idea behind it, or at least how I think of it, is if um, if it's lunchtime and what you really want is a burger, but then you eat a salad, um, first of all, just FYI, many salads have just as many calories, if not more, than a burger. Um, but if you go with something that doesn't satisfy you, you're just going to probably make up for that later in eating something else. And so why not just go for the first thing that that you crave but the side note to that is that if you really truly are paying attention to your body for the most part it's probably not going to ask you for shitty processed foods it's going to want real food it's going to want whole food um and so yeah just listening to, to what it asks for and paying attention you know trying i know 
it's hard in this this world that we live in but trying to eat without distraction trying not to eat in front of the television if you can help it um without you know sitting and reading while you're eating why is that um it just first of Paul all said if, defensively yeah <laughs> um when you're sitting in front of the tv distracted um you tend to eat more and that could be for a few reasons. Um, one of the reasons may be just because you are um, you're distracted, and so you're not paying attention to the signals that your body is sending you, like saying I'm full. Um, the other reason that I usually think of too is that if you're not paying attention to your meal, you're not getting the satisfaction of you know feeling what it feels like in your mouth and what it tastes like and what it smells like and what the experience of eating that food is, and so. You're not going to be as satisfied if you missed out on the experience, basically. Um, so what you're saying is I shouldn't eat six mayonnaise sandwiches while I watch my story. <laughs> um, I'm sure we all know that you do exactly that. Um, but, yeah, that's probably not the best idea. <laughs> Maybe if you weren't watching your stories, you'd realize that you don't like mayonnaise sandwiches that much. I've actually never had a mayonnaise sandwich. <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything wrong with mayonnaise, but sometimes I prefer a little turkey in mine. So, <laughs> um, um, yeah. what, what other... What other tips? Um, um, I think that paying attention to your own needs and so, you know, like cooking for yourself, I think that that is a huge way that you can take care of yourself. Like I, one of the jobs that I have is uh, I work with um, people at an eating disorder treatment program and at the end of program, at the end of the night, we ask, what are you going to do tonight to take care of yourself? Um and so I like to think about that a lot. And for me, a lot of the times what I'm going to do to take care of myself is go home, cook myself a nice dinner. That doesn't mean it has to take an hour. Um, sometimes, or be expensive. Or be expensive. Uh, or be extravagant. Sometimes it, But it does mean you should dress up in a ball gown. Yes, it does. Um, candle lit. Um, but, you know, sometimes it takes me 10 minutes to cook dinner. And it's just so important to put yourself first, I think. And so... Um, in, in most situations and and in that situation specifically. So, um, yeah, just trying to stick to those whole foods as much as possible. Um, I, I wouldn't say that there is like a superfood or a magic bullet that's going to solve whether it's a weight problem or an emotional problem. There is definitely some speculation about, you know, omega-3 fatty acids and, and the impact on mood. Um, them positively. Positively, yeah, yeah. Um, and they've helped a lot of people. They don't help everybody. Um, and there are other factors, too, just like with, with medication. So, um, yeah, I, I like I was saying, I can't really point to a specific, like, superfood for emotions, but just treating yourself right. Like, I, I would... I like to think of it as like, how would you take care of your child um, or a younger sibling or who, who, whoever or you care about? A or car, a car that you love. Or a car, yeah, or a dog or, you know, who, who do you, what do you care about? And um, how would you take care of that thing or that person or that being um, and treat yourself that way, including with your diet? It's so hard when we feel genetically betrayed by our body. Yeah. And we feel like we've been cursed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like you just, yeah, I... I got to drag this fucking thing around feeling, until I die. Feeling stuck in your own skin is a really challenging thing. It's, yeah. um, and I can only imagine for people who have it even worse off than I do in terms of feeling trapped in, in a body. Um, but yeah, it's really challenging. And, and the thing that I would love for people to understand is that 
I know because I didn't have a healthy diet, um, obviously, and um, like before I got into nutrition, and I didn't realize how bad I felt until I started improving my diet. And once I did, I realized I feel amazing. And I, I, yeah, I just didn't realize how bad I felt. And if you feel better physically, it, it, all it can do is help. It's not going to necessarily cure you, but it can at least help your mood. And at it gives least you, you some feel lighter. Emotional resiliency. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just treat yourself right. Which was the name of my first smooth jazz band. <laughs> do you uh, do you want to go out with some love offs? Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. I'm going to be uh, reading Nicole's loves. Okay. Uh, I'll start with hers. I love hospitals. I love being nurtured while my only responsibility is to lie there and get well. Oh, do I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's mm. I like it too. Um, I love the sound of multiple clocks ticking at one time, like in a clock shop. Mm-hmm. I love that first day in spring that it's warm enough to go outside without a coat on. Yeah. Um, I love getting home after an extremely long day, stressing about a number of different things, including now needing to make myself dinner and remembering that it is okay to have cereal for dinner sometimes. <laughs> uh, I love my gray and white hairs. They sparkle so I look like I have glitter in my hair. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, where was I? Oh, because I work in San Francisco and parking is heinous. Some days I need to go out to move my car every two hours. While this is a pain at times, I love when it is nice and sunny out and moving my car really just gives me an excuse to take a break and go for a walk. I love when music makes me suddenly burst out crying. Oh, I love that too. <laughs> Feels like such a release. Mm -hmm. uh, I love when my two best friends and I get together, which happens rarely, and it's as if no time has passed. Often we'll go to a bookstore and sit down with some coffee with books or magazines from our respective interests, which happen to be worlds apart in their similarity, and we are able to just coexist with lots of quiet but semi-frequent interjections of thoughts with no feelings of awkwardness or discomfort. I love my two best friends. That was beautiful, and I love how personal and detailed you make that. Those are my favorites when, when people really get specific and paint yeah. a picture. Um, I love being retweeted by a favorite celebrity or receiving a reply from them. I have yet to have that happen, but I look forward to the day. <laughs> uh, I love having an epiphany that lifts such a significant weight off of me that I literally feel like I can breathe better. Uh, I love drifting in and out of dreams for hours. I love singing alone in my car and believing I sound just as good, if not better, than whatever artist I'm singing along ah. to. <laughs> uh, I love my violin teacher, but he must never know. That's <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> um, I love when my... One of my sisters, a very talented singer-songwriter, posts a new video of an original song, and when I listen to the lyrics, I feel that I know exactly what she's singing about. It helps me feel so connected, even though we live eight hours apart. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, more synchronicity. I love when a new music album suddenly clicks and I fall in love with it after several listens. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love when my three sisters and I can simply look at each other and communicate without using words in a way I have never experienced with any other human being. Oh, that's beautiful. I love listening to a new album for the first time in a quiet room with good headphones. Yeah. I love long phone conversations with my mom when I'm able to get past that fear that she is annoyed with me. <laughs> uh, I love when my cats lay on my chest and put their paws on my chin. Mm. I love when my dad texts me to tell me that he's thinking about me at 6.14 a.m. or p.m. Those are the same digits as my birthday. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I love storms with warm rain and high winds. I love the healing power of food and love even more when a highly qualified healthcare professional such as a physician shares a similar mindset as I do when it comes to nutrition. I love having the house to myself. I love that too. I love when maternal Hispanic women call me mija. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the hope and pride that appear when I am productive. I love when I get to share my passion for helping others develop a positive relationship with food. It makes me feel like the struggle I went through is all worth it if it leads to healing for others. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I love the smell of early morning autumn in the Pacific Northwest. I dubbed it the slug smell as a child. And that's it for me. And we'll go with her last one. Um, I love when I am so distracted from my mental chatter that I am fully present in the moment. It's precious because it is so very rare. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree thank with you that for, one. Thank you for that list, uh, Nicole and Samantha. Thank you so much for um, for coming on and sharing your uh, your life and your struggles and your pain and your anxiety and uh, and your your tips for uh, being nicer to ourselves and, and the food that the food that we eat. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And on. again, people can find your blog at. It's a nourished blog. That's n o u r i s h e d blog dot wordpress dot com. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Many, many thanks to uh, Samantha. Uh, I shot her an email to let her know I was putting her episode up, and I haven't heard back from her yet. I'm, I'm, I'm a jackass. I always do it like with less than twenty four hours uh, <clears throat> notice. So a lot of times uh, the guests uh, don't get back to me, and uh, so I don't have an update uh, from her. But um, there, you, there you go. My bad planning. Um, before I take it out with some surveys. I want to um, give some love to our, our our sponsor. You know, I so love when we get a sponsor that just perfectly fits um, this this podcast and um, the Out of the Darkness Chicago Land Community Walk. I'm so happy uh, to be sponsoring them last show and and this week's show. Um, According to the CDC, after cancer and heart disease, suicide accounts for more years of life loss than any other cause of death. Yet suicide prevention remains significantly underfunded, and you can help change that. So donate to the nation, <clears throat> donate to the nation's largest suicide prevention event, the Out of the Darkness Chicago Land Community Walk at chicagowalk.org. The Out of the Darkness Chicago Land Community Walk benefits the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a four-star rated nonprofit by Charity Navigator. It's a great, great organization. Um, your donation to uh, chicagowalk.org is tax deductible and greatly appreciated. Um, so please give today. And just some facts to keep in mind, there is one suicide every 13 minutes here in the United States, 38,000 a year. Um, uh, the <clears throat> AFSP uh, provides tools for people to deal um, with their feelings, both those who are considering suicide and those who have um, been left in the wake of it by others. Um, they provide resources. Um, they help change public policy uh, to get more funding for it. Uh, they do education and uh and they support uh, loved ones. They're, it's just a great, great organization. So um, either attend the event uh, or go to chicagowalk.org and make a tax-deductible uh, donation today. Uh, it is greatly appreciated, and um, you never know whose life you might be saving. So there you have it. And thank you 
Thank you guys for sponsoring this show. Let's get to some surveys. This is Psych Ward Experiences. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Keep Calm. Uh, Actually, a girl. She's 17. And um, she was hospitalized because she writes, she, uh, she was 13 years old, very sick and malnourished due to her anorexia. And uh, she was entering treatment. uh, Her experience, she writes, uh, the night I was admitted was the first step in my recovery. As I was put in my hospital room and had my vitals taken, my mom left me to head home and get me more PJs. I sat there on my bed and thought deeply about what was happening to me. I was very aware I was a child and that I was dying. I was able to finish my dinner that first night, and since my parents weren't there to praise and comfort me, a very kind nurse came in and told me how proud she was. I will always remember her kindness. I ended up spending four days on the ward, and it was a time of very deep fear and instability. It was the beginning of a journey that saved my life, thanks to the nurses and psychologists that fashioned a a cocoon to keep me safe and on track. I'm so lucky. Lord knows I needed it. I feel like I can't stress enough how important taking just 15 seconds out of our day and saying something kind to somebody can mean look i mean that might have saved that might have saved that girl's life so beautiful and i especially love when people in the health industry as easy as it is for them to get worn down you know or what they you know call compassion fatigue um for them to remember that each person is not a case but a but a a person and when they they're they truly are angels I hate that word, angels, but you are. Those of you in the health profession that deep, dig deep and find that compassion day in and day out and patience, you are uh, you are angels. Right now I'm riding a unicorn. This is kind of, what is with my voice? <clears throat> I kind of like it and I kind of hate it. I almost sound like the guy on the, uh, the timber of my voice almost sounds like the guy that does the Lexus commercials. He makes a lot of money. Maybe I need to just... Ah, I can't even stand myself. Can't even finish my own sentence. This is from the sexual abuse or violation of a young male by an older female survey. I don't think that name is long enough. I think I say that every time I read this. <clears throat> and... Um, She writes, it's only a fantasy. I was introduced in my late teens to a kind of uh, drawn, completely fictional porn called Shota, which involves young boys, when I was in my late teens. At the time, I looked up to several people I knew through the internet who were self-identified pedophiles and thought this kind of porn, uh, which impacted my, and sought this kind of porn, which impacted my sexuality heavily. Most of my fantasies and the types of material I look at on doujinshi websites involve a much older female and a young boy having sex with some kind of maternal angle. I don't like anything violent or non-consensual because I find it upsetting. I also don't picture myself in the situation. I think there's an element of comfort to me in seeing the male in the situation be so vulnerable and still be taken care of. Oh, I should mention she is um, she's female and uh, she's gay and she's in her 20s and uh, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, some stuff happened to her, but she doesn't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Uh, she writes, I remember my grandpa on my mom's side forcing me onto his lap every time I was around him. I felt uncomfortable, but I don't remember much about it. 
Um, she writes, I have told a few people about this kink, most notably my therapist who says it's okay so long as I can keep the fiction of my fantasies separate from the reality of child sexual abuse. I'm not sure I believe her. I want to be normal and have normal fantasies. Believe your therapist. Believe your therapist. Um, because, <clears throat> you know, our fantasies are, are, are things that are really uh, thrust upon us. And, it, you know, it's like freckles. You know, you can go through your entire life hating your freckles and wishing you didn't have them, or you can just say, hey, they're here. Um, what am I going to do about it now? <clears throat> and if you're not hurting anybody, it might be a fun thing to uh, explore with a, with a partner or by yourself, um, unless it feels addictive to you, in which case I'd get help for it. Uh, she writes, shame. I hate myself about this and feel intense anxiety because I feel like the most degenerate pervert to ever walk the earth. I feel like if any of my current friends knew about this, they would leave me and tell everyone around around them that I'm a pedophile, even though I'm not. I'm terrified. <clears throat> um, I feel that damage was done to me by the pedophiles I looked up to. I didn't know why they were scary at the time. I had no idea what their defense of pedophilia meant. I feel like I had a large part of my innocence ripped away from me and replaced by fucked up coping mechanisms to try to process what I read and saw about these people's desires, and I'm trapped here forever. Um, well, sending you some love, and take your therapist advice. We pay our therapists for, for a reason. And you are not a degenerate, perverted piece of shit. Everybody's got something in their in their closet that they're afraid to share. <clears throat> this is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself that weird Maddie kid. Why does she keep filling out surveys? Why doesn't the poor girl just go home? Uh, she writes, I thought I f had found the guy I was going to spend the rest of my life with. We have this cute apartment in town, and our puppy, Apollo, is the sweetest little lightning bolt, but always loves to eat things he isn't supposed to. If my boyfriend and I fought, Apollo would go find something he wasn't supposed to play with, and then we'd have, a de have to derail the fight to get the expo marker out of his mouth or keep him from destroying that shoe. You get the idea. Anyway, my dreamy, wonderful boyfriend comes home one night and dumps me in the worst way I've ever been dumped. I don't love you anymore, he says. The sex hasn't been the same, which it hadn't. And I know we could work on us, but I don't want to anymore. I fell to the ground, helpless, begging, wailing. Please don't do this to me. You love me. I don't believe you. Why would you say these things to me? It took me the better part of for an hour to realize our, quote, perfect relationship was over and there was nothing I could do. My world collapsed around me. For an hour, I lost track of Apollo. He was in the other room. And once we finally came out of this awful breakup moment, we went to find him. The rat fucker had taken my vibrator. My favorite luxurious $125 clitoral power tool and decided it was a chew toy. Lucky, Luckily for all parties, the part that had come into contact with my genitalia had been left untouched, but the battery carriage was completely fucked. He had even eaten bits of plastic, so I was sure we'd end up in the ER later that night. I was terrified for him. But all I could think to myself was, you 12-pound bastard, I don't have a boyfriend anymore. I was going to need that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Is my voice permanently going to sound like this? Note to self, don't eat cashew butter before you go record. <clears throat> 
This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Ron. And um, I love his description of uh, his depression. Feels like I've fallen off the boat and I'm treading water and getting really tired. And then he has a snapshot from his life <clears throat> that I think is actually a fantastic, awfulsome moment. Um, actually, just an awful moment. Um, he writes, having worked hard for 30 years to perfect my craft as a jeweler, uh, but my self-esteem suffers, partly because I'm socially ostracized by my boss and co-workers because I'm not an office worker. My hands get dirty. A lady actually brings her daughter to my desk and says, see, this is why you want to go to college, to avoid this kind of job. Oh, do some people just not, do they not care or do they just not think? I mean, how the fuck do you say that with the person standing right there? This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself situational sadness. And uh, he uh, struggles with bipolar and his compulsive, his compulsive behavior. He writes, furious Olympic tournament-like masturbation. How do you not read that? How do you not read that survey? So do they replace the thing that you put your hands in and the chalk? Is that just lotion? And then the person that wins when you, there's the three-tiered thing and the flag goes up and they, and they do the anthem, is the person on the top tier, are they usually just nodding off? The other two people are kind of awake, but the person that won is just sound asleep. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mad Dog. She is uh, straight in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. You know, I don't know if I have ever read one of these surveys where... After I read the survey, I went, yeah, that was a stable and safe environment. Oh, she actually qualifies. Well, maybe a wee bit of dysfunction. There are some serious boundary issues in my family, but we are good otherwise. Well, I would say serious boundary issues cannot exist with stable and safe at the same time. Boundaries equals safety. Anyway, uh, she's never been sexually abused. She's never been physically abused. Um, she's not sure if she's been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, I honestly don't think this counts as emotional abuse. I had such a good upbringing overall that anytime I reflect on the bad stuff, it sounds like arbitrary complaining. The hardest thing I went through was when I was growing up. I was the second of four kids and almost immediately inhabited the role of, quote, problem child. I remember getting into trouble all the time as a little kid and all up all the way into college while living at home. I once tripped over some cords my dad had connected to his computer and got yelled at so badly that I still remember it to this day. I was about four or five at the time. When in my late teens and early 20s, my parents would often punish me by refusing to drive me places or let me do things outside the house. In college, I yelled at my dad and he refused to drive me to class an hour away from where we lived. I didn't have a car or any other way of getting to class. My uh, older sister... Um, well, I, I think you got a good, I think you got a good, um, uh, there, there's more stuff here, but it's all kind of uh, similar, similar to that. Um, she writes, my family has always treated me like a really aggressive, negative, problematic person. I was completely shocked when my first therapist told me I was a really caring, gentle person. I was 22 at the time. Any positive experiences <clears throat> with your abusers? 
Um, of course, I have positive feelings towards my family. We are very close to this day. I love them dearly, but having a loving family who always told me or tell me I'm this angry, problematic, hard-to-get-along-with person is confusing as hell. On the one hand, why would they lie to me about who I am? But on the other hand, it's only with boundaries between me and my entire family that I've finally been able to embrace this much gentle, gentler, more empathetic, caring identity. And the most ironic part is that now that I have these strong boundaries and this strong identity as a good person, my family has been gravitating towards me more than ever. I feel like the family therapist sometimes. I just have to laugh at how ridiculous it all is sometimes. And I love that. What a great example of that is of, you know, what therapists often call the family dynamic. Because it's almost never just one person. It's a chemistry of maybe one person, you know, like a, a you know, a parent's alcoholism then sets about you know, maybe the other the spouse's codependency, which then leads to boundary crossing and inappropriate sharing with the kid. But, you know, my point being that it's this kind of... um this big circular thing where it's all moving parts that you know are trying to balance themselves out in some sick way. Um, but what I love is that you've changed, and as a result, there's also more positive change in your family. Uh, darkest thoughts. My deep, dark thoughts often have to do with doing violence towards my family members, who I love so much, which is confusing as hell. In writing these out, I realize they're not really that deep or dark compared to what a lot of other people go through, but they feel dark to me. You have to understand that my family is ridiculously close. We all see each other once a week, even though we're all adults with our own lives. I live with my older And by the way, and I'm not saying this isn't the case with you, but proximity and frequency of visits does not equal closeness. <clears throat> I live with my older sister now as an adult, and we get along very well these days, but sometimes I fantasize about shaking her by the shoulders as hard as I can and screaming at her about all the fucked up shit she did to me as kids. The most frustrating thing is that I'm sure she would either not remember or explain away everything. I fantasize about punching my parents in the face or stabbing them with kitchen knives or tying up my entire family with duct tape and taping their mouths closed just to make them listen to me, listen to me as in caps, and hear me hear me as in caps for once. Now that I'm embracing being a calm, gentle, understanding person, my family often comes to me with their problems. Often I do my best to listen and empathize, but sometimes I just want to slap them in the face and tell them that they should have listened to me for once in the 24 years I've been alive. I also struggle with the idea that I might be sexually attracted to girls. I have absolutely no problem with people loving whoever they choose, but I was raised in a very Catholic, conservative household. I'm less conservative now, but still extremely Catholic, and the thought that I might also be bisexual or gay scares the hell out of me. I've never told anyone about being somewhat attracted to girls, since everyone in my life right now who is super close to me is very religious and judgmental. Wow, why do those two always go together? Or almost always. <clears throat> Very religious and judgmental. Deepest, darkest secrets. They all feel silly compared to what I've heard on the podcast, but here goes. I think my biggest shameful slash dark secret is about what I haven't done rather than what I have. I'm 24, a law school graduate. I have lots of friends and a loving family, but I've never had sex or, wait for it, ever been kissed. 
I have no idea why I'm such a late bloomer in this way. I've been on dates and all, and I have plenty of desire to kiss hot, kind people and all that, but it's just never happened to me. Each year as I get older, I get more terrified that something's just incredibly wrong with me. I even consider that I might be asexual, but unfortunately that's not the case either. I don't even know how to bring this up to people anymore, but I feel like it's taking over my sexual identity. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexual fantasies are all over the place, from the most vanilla, straight, happily married, and cuddling in bed scenarios to rough bondage. Lately, I've been fantasizing also about sex with women. I don't know if I'm gay or not, but having sex with a woman just seems like it would be amazing. The thought of being intimate with someone so beautiful and soft is mind-blowing. All of my sexual fantasies are complicated by the shame I have about never having even been kissed, much less having been sexual with anyone. I've never masturbated or orgasmed in my life. When, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my parents how fucked up it was that they decided I was the problem kid almost right away and that they punished me for some pretty arbitrary shit growing up. I want to tell my parents how much it hurts and still hurts when they unquestioningly side with my older sister over me just because she's the model child and I'm not. I want to tell my sister how controlling and cruel she can be to me when we were kids and how judgmental and shaming she is today. I just want to tell my family that they have to stop disrespecting my boundaries and making me feel like a piece of shit when I tell them that they've hurt me in some way. All this feels useless because I know as soon as I start saying this stuff to them, they will dismiss me, explain everything away, justify themselves, attack me for making them feel bad, or straight up deny it. I don't want to give them any more ammo to shoot back at me. You know, I think it's perfect time for you to start giving them consequences like not visiting them, you know, um, and even more so just to be kind to yourself. And it might be some good sp space for you to go explore your sexuality. Hold on one second. Let me pause. Our theme music just kicked in. Holy shit, we're at two hours already. My God, where does the time go? Um... How do you feel after writing these things down? Um, confused, brave, enlightened, frustrated. It's bringing some stuff into focus and also making me feel like more of a mess than usual. If I should, could marshal my thoughts better, this would be a fantastic survey. It is a fantastic survey. That's why I'm reading it. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. I think a lot of people who just heard me read that are going to be saying, oh my God, yes, yes. This is a happy moment filled out by Valerie. She writes, I've always been a happy person, always optimistic and cheerful until I had my baby. Postpartum depression blindsided me. The instant I became a mother, I was anxious and sad. I cried every day for about six months. It was truly awful. My baby is now 14 months old and the fog has mostly lifted. Now I'm so grateful for the moments I can look into my daughter's eyes and feel joy. Happiness is having myself back and being able to be the mother I always wanted to be. Love it. Love it. This is a snapshot from um, a woman who calls herself Painted Bull. This is from Struggle in a Sentence. 
She struggles with depression, anxiety, uh, alcoholism, anorexia, um, being a victim of uh, sex crime and uh, anger. <clears throat> and she writes, there I go again. I slipped. I'm gone. Disassociated. I'm an empty shell of a human going through the motions, knowing that I need to do the bare minimum to survive. Complete and utter lack of emotion. No joy, no sadness, no anger, no drive, no love, not anything. I do not think about anything. I do not believe in anything. I simply go and do because I know that, quote, normal me does this. I do as I once did. I cannot find it within myself to smile, laugh, cry, sympathize, sympathize empathize, become angry. No rage, no passion, no romance. Absolute, devastating, utterly terrifying nothingness. And it's me. It's inside me. An all-consuming blackness. A stripping of self. And I have no control. It just is. I can tell it's about to happen. And then I'm gone. I feel less than human, but I look the same. I hate myself that this can happen, even though I can't help it. Nothing specific triggers it. Nothing specific pulls me out. It is roulette. My brain is fucking with itself. But it's me. And I struggle to accept it. I have no real way of explaining how it makes me feel. What I feel and what I believe do not match up. I'm fucked. That's one of the most profound things I've ever read on the podcast. And I identify with so much of that. I mean, I feel like you just described my inner life these last <clears throat> these last five months. I mean, yours is definitely more severe than mine, but I just I feel like feel like a robot sometimes. Like I want to cry. I want to laugh. But I'm just on this middle in between. And that's why I play Civilization 5 until 5 in the morning. Because I feel something when I play that. When I take over a city. And finally, I have gold or silver or cotton or silk or pearls. I'm like, yeah, now my people are going to be happy. I'm providing for them. The factories are going to be more productive. My army's going to fight harder. I'm okay. But I look at my life, my real life outside of the video game, and I don't want to do anything. I can't clear the mail off the table. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by a guy who calls himself Anxious Composer. And this is a snapshot. He struggles with anxiety and PTSD. And he writes, I wonder if it's going to be a good day or a bad day. Wondering turns to worry, which then means that the best today is going to be is a carefully managed struggle between my fears and my values. Exhausted, I try to sleep at night, but the worry about tomorrow's prospects has already begun. Thank you for that. Same survey filled out by Anne with an E. She's a teenager. Um her bipolar depression, like drowning in water that keeps changing between comfortable bath temperature and ice-numbing cold. But being a sex crime victim, I'm never going to have a normal relationship, friend-wise or other, without sexual feelings. Boy, that is the thing that, that just... That is the worst 
repercussion I find um, about having experienced, and I am attributing it to that, you know, just because I've read that that's one of the things that is left in the wake of it, is just sexual feelings come up at just times where it's just like, it's like a mosquito or a fly that just won't leave me. It's like, just please go away. Can I just have this deep conversation with somebody else without it turning into sexual feelings? Uh, snapshot from her life. I was sitting next to my sister's boyfriend while watching a musical she was in, trying to decide whether I wanted to kiss him or punch him in the face. Thank you for that. Um, this is Shame and Secrets, filled out by a... Is that a moth? It was a moth. Filled out by a woman who calls herself fuckface unbearable. I think we've read her surveys before. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and um, never reported it. Um, she was uh, abused by uh, his dad's girlfriend's daughter, um, who was two years older than her. Um, She's been emotionally abused. She writes, I've been a pawn to everyone. My grandmother paid for a lawyer so my dad could get custody. He didn't uh, ever want me. Didn't even want me. He wanted to have my mom suffer. When I was six, my dad cut off contact with my mom for a month. I cried myself to sleep every night. Every time I told my mom something, she would say, Who told you to say that? Your dad? No, just me. My dad never hugged or kissed me. My mom was over-affectionate. I had no real love. What should I feel? My dad and stepmom sent me to a therapist against my will to prove my mom fucked me up. Want to know her conclusion? That the most detrimental thing that was happening was that I was being put in between my two parents. That they wouldn't talk to each other. So I was the one who had to hear each side and come to a compromise. I was 12 and had to take on all of their hate. My emotions and needs are so twisted because of this. Can't anyone just love me? Oh my God, that breaks my heart. That is, you know, I want to slap people a lot when I read these surveys, the people that cause this pain. But I just really want to punch your fucking parents right now. I just really want to punch them in the fucking face. I feel no compassion to them right now. I just... Your child, when your child needs you the most and you're using them as a pawn because you're so fucking selfish. Oh. See, Ivy agrees. Any positive experiences with your abusers? The girl was one of my closest friends, someone who was there when our parents neglected us. Um... I always felt close to my dad. He was supposed to be my guardian and protector. I thought, Ivy, I thought he loved me. Does he? I feel like I owe him something, like nothing was really that bad, and I'm blowing this up in my head. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I fantasize about torturing people, about having them tied up and I slowly kill them. I want to drive my car off a bridge, to jump, to take all the pills, to just fucking die. When it gets bad, death overwhelms me, and I know I can't, but feel like I must. 
Ivy, can we have a little respect for the surveys? She's actually, for her, amazingly quiet when I do the show. Maybe it's because I, I do this at night. Because she, she hears a leaf crunch six blocks away, uh, you know, she thinks the world's falling apart. Darkest secrets. I haven't told anyone but my husband uh, about being molested and how fucked up my childhood was. I don't think people would care or believe me. He's the only one that knows I tried to kill myself and about the burn scars I have. He's the only person I feel vulnerable around and that and that actually loves me with no hidden agenda. Well, thank God. Thank God you have him. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being taken advantage of, being restrained and taken forcefully. I don't know if I could ever be with a woman, but I think about that sometimes too. Ding, ding, ding. My brain is trying to protect me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to ask my family if they really did love me. I'd ask my mom what actually happened to her to make her so emotional and needy. I'd ask my dad if he knows how shitty things were, if he feels sorry, if he loves me. You know, my feeling is you would be going to a well that is dry. And the best thing for you to do is to just set boundaries and find people that can love you, where there's no question in your mind. Because um, your parents sound really fucking selfish and broken. And maybe they'll heal and do work on themselves and come around, maybe even apologize. But one of the cruelest things you can do to yourself is to try to change them, to get into that insanity, to try to make them see. If they could just see that I'm in pain, they'll change. No. Sick people usually have to get tired of their pain to change, not the pain of those around them. At least that's my experience. You know, I was a dick for a lot of years and couldn't really see it until I just couldn't take my suicidal thoughts anymore and I got help and lo and behold I began to discover I was the source of most of my problems still am scratchy Herbert's chiming in now poor guy we took him to the vet yesterday $660 chest x-ray for his enlarged heart He's got some kind of skin infection. His teeth are bad. His asshole's full. He's completely shat himself in the vet. Every time they bring him out of the back, he's wrapped in a in a towel because they had to wash him. Oh, he is just, and I couldn't love him anymore. All right, my my voice is starting to go, so I'm gonna <clears throat> try to get these last through these last few. This was um, filled out by a guy who calls himself Pink Triangle. Is that sexual? I think that's sexual. Um, his happy moment, moving home after my first suicide attempt. It was like living with strangers who I'd worked so hard to disconnect from in order to avoid disappointing those who loved me most. After those three months at home, my dad will still tell me every week that he still listens to the new Florence and the Machine CD I bought and made a copy for him. It's his way of saying, no, I really do love you, and it means more to me than when he says, I love you. Makes me feel safe every time. <laughs> what is that noise? 
God. It's a carnival behind me tonight. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself E is for Elephant. Come on. Seriously. Uh, (laughs) About her anxiety. Buying tickets for shows or concerts weeks or months ahead of time only to have my excitement slowly turn to anxiety and dread until the time of the event comes. And instead of going, I'm curled up in bed trying to convince myself that I just would have had a miserable time anyway, and I'm not really missing anything. I just bought a ticket for the live podcast in Brooklyn. I really hope I actually make it there. Well, if you do, please come up to me and say hi. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a hug or a high five, whichever you're more comfortable doing but i would i so relate to that by the way i so relate to that um all right i can only i can only handle a couple more uh same sentence filled out by sammy's about her codependency she writes you don't want you don't want to buy the off-brand version of microwave popcorn hold on let me see what my parents think that's fantastic And this is nice. She writes, This past year has been really difficult for me. I'm making progress, thanks in large part to your podcast. But I remember many days sitting on the couch staring out the window at the impossibly blue skies and bright green grass, people skateboarding, biking, walking by, and thinking, why can't that be me? Why can't I go outside? And I think a lot of us relate to that one. Um... Herbert, you are just a factory of sounds tonight. Here's the funny part, is he's laying on his side like he's asleep. All right, um, I have an awfulsome moment and a happy moment. And the awfulsome moment is filled out by a 16-year-old who is non-binary and calls themselves Gremlin. And they write... I was 11, and I was in a pizza hut with my alcoholic mother. I'm a fan right away. You could have ended it right there. Uh, Her alcoholic brother and my recovering step-cousin who decided to not wear a shirt to Pizza Hut. Oh, my God, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. We sit down, and I immediately start feeling panic. My anxiety raised through the room, and I was shaking so badly I could barely speak without chattering teeth. I was sure I was about to have a heart attack. I honestly thought that maybe it was the smell of grease that caused the sick feeling in my stomach, but I also felt a slight rumble. Thinking I was hungry, I only ignored it. Our food is almost ready, and I feel the rumble again. Only this time, it's going to come out of one end. I run into the bathroom and learn that I have diarrhea. It was almost like a smoothie coming out of my butthole, causing the loudest farts in a bathroom full of other people. About five minutes into my panic shit, I hear a lady say, Oh, it stinks in here. What is that? Only causing my fear shits to get worse and for embarrassment to eat me up inside. I walk out and we leave, eating my breadsticks and pizza alone in my room, learning what a panic attack was for the first time. 
It was almost as bad as when I got my first period. Thank God for anonymity. Because <clears throat> you guys wouldn't share half the shit that you do. I bet a lot of you would, but... And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by... Um, a woman who calls herself another manic depressive. And she writes, I was driving along with my nine-year-old in the back seat when the topic on the radio turned uh, to uh, Bruce Jenner's transformation, transformation to Caitlyn Jenner. Suddenly, my son looked up from his iPod and said, does that man have a vagina now? Feeling a little awkward about how he might react, I decided to explain to my son about transgender. When I was done, he says to me, wow, it must be really hard to look like a boy when you are really a girl. I am glad that man can have a vagina now. That means he can be happy. I was so proud of my son and his lack of prejudice. No judgment or giggles. Just an acceptance that all people, no matter what, are exactly that. People. Thank you for that. Thank you guys for... Uh, all the surveys that you fill out. Thank you to the monthly donors. I don't thank you enough. Thank you to the transcribers. Um, thank you, uh, those of you that spread um, the word about the podcast through word of mouth. <clears throat> and I can't wait to meet some of you in person um, at PodFest or at the live event at um, uh, Brooklyn at the Bell House. Really, really looking forward to it. And um I hope if you were feeling alone before you started listening tonight that you feel a little less alone and you feel maybe just a glimmer more hope uh, than you felt because uh, on some level we're all just struggling to get through this crazy, crazy uh, universe of ours. And um, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.